So we all have goals for our kids, right? We have things that we want to see them accomplish. And dads, since this is Father's Day, uh, but a good exercise of thought for moms and dads, if you today have kids under 18 or think back to when your kids were younger, if they're 18 or older now, if you were to have had to do what they did to write a letter to your kids when they turn 18, what would you want it to say? And of course, this forces us hopefully to think about what, <clears throat> what do we want, what type of impression, what type of impact do we want to have on our families, and what do we want our kids to become? I mean, I think all of us want our kids to become functioning adults, right? Uh, contributing members to society, law-abiding members of society. But more than that, hopefully, we want our kids to grow up to be men and women who love the Lord with all their heart, soul, and mind and serve Him with everything that they are and everything that they have. And there are a lot of different ways that can play out because God has a different, unique purpose for each individual He creates. But that should be our desire. Now, of course, children can rebel. We don't want that to happen. We know the consequences if they do, but it does happen. Uh, We've seen it time and time again. Some of us have lived it, right? Some of us could share testimonies about that. And the truth is, the parable that we're going to look at today in Luke chapter 15 shows us what can happen when a child rebels the consequences, but also shows us how incredible a father's love can be for that child who rebels and repents. So we'll be looking in Luke chapter 15. You can go ahead and turn in your Bibles there. Uh, Just kind of a little, this familiar parable, the parable, we we call it the parable of the prodigal son. Um, And we see a little bit of the context that's going on here, I think is necessary as we dig in, but as we prepare to dig in this morning, Jesus is teaching the tax collectors and the moral outcasts some spiritual truths about God's kingdom when some religious leaders uh, come up and they start complaining. How dare you, uh, you know, associate with these outcasts of society? They say this man welcomes sinners and eats with them because in the eyes of the Pharisees, Uh, And listen, tax collectors had earned a pretty rough reputation. They weren't the nicest people of the day. And if you were alive in this day and time, you you or your family member had been cheated uh, unfairly uh, by one of these tax collectors. And so certainly there was reason to not necessarily like these guys too much. But in the eyes of the Pharisees and teachers especially, these tax collectors, these sinners because of their actions, had cut themselves off from the nation of Israel, being considered one of God's chosen people from the religious community. So in their eyes, these individuals were spiritually dead and could not be revived. They were not worth associating with. They were not worth wasting time on them. The teachers of law certainly wanted people to convert to Judaism, They wanted people, but not these people, to convert to Judaism. Anybody except these people. Uh, They they did not accept in any way tax collectors and these that Jesus was talking to. They were unable and unwilling 
to understand the reality that God will accept anyone who will turn to him in true repentance. Turning from sin, turning to God. They couldn't see that. They didn't want to see that. They were blind to this. And so this is the context. This is what's going on. And in response to this, Jesus teaches a parable. He teaches three parables. The lost sheep, the lost coin, and the lost son or the prodigal son. And in each of these instances, each of these parables, there's something that's lost. There is an owner who desperately wants to find that something. And then there's a celebration when that thing is found or that one is found. And through this parable, Jesus describes everybody that was listening then. And if we will listen the way he intended for them to listen, he will describe us. We can identify at some point with a person in this parable, with a character in this parable. We should all, all of these who are listening, in the direct context, what's going on here, everybody that was listening should have listened to this story and in some way identified, in some way looked into the mirror and seen something of themselves in this story and said, that's me, I identify, either in a good way or a bad way, a not so good way. The prodigal son plays the social and moral outcast. Maybe you've been there, maybe you are today. You think folks look at you as an outcast. The, Jesus, he, he's describing those who were cast aside by society, the rebellious sinner, the older brother, would represent the self-righteous Jew of the day, someone who has become so religious that they have forgotten about the outcasts that Jesus came to save just as much as them. And of course, the Father represents God, the loving Father, who's willing to accept those who turn to him for forgiveness. And so Jesus calls individuals, all individuals, to turn from their sin to turn to him. And he also calls those of us who are saved, he accepts those who turn to him for forgiveness. We, as God's people, should accept those outcasts who turn from their sin and turn to God and celebrate when they do. Here's the purpose. The parable of the prodigal son is a wonderful illustration of God's love toward his children, both the rebellious and the obedient. God loves both. Now, the rebellious, either lost or out of fellowship with God, the obedient not, but he loves us all. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, so that whoever believes in him may not perish but have everlasting life. The truth is, we call this the parable of the prodigal son, and I think it would probably be more appropriate to call it the parable of the faithful father, the loving father. Um, Because that's who God is, and that's who the dad, the father in this story, illustrates. Jesus' contemporaries would have been familiar with this, with with the fatherhood of God, and and they also would have been familiar with uh, the nation of Israel, the analogy of the nation of Israel being described as the rebellious child. We see in Jeremiah's prophecy, we see this. Jeremiah 31, verses 18 through 19, I have surely heard a frame moaning. You disciplined me, and I have been disciplined like an untrained calf. Take me back so that I can return for you, Lord, are my God. 
After my return, I felt regret. After I was instructed, I struck my thigh in grief. I was ashamed and humiliated because I bore the disgrace of my youth. Israel had rebelled against God time and time again, and had been described as a rebellious child. So this this parable gives us a unique opportunity this morning to, to take our own spiritual temperature so to speak, to look at, at, at how we relate to God's love toward us as individuals when we have turned against him in some way, um, but also as those of us who, you know, those who are, are, are being faithful, not perfect, but obedient to God, how we react to the outcasts of society. How much do we really want to see those individuals come to faith in Christ? And are we willing to accept them with the same love and the same compassion that God has? Where we stand depends on how well we are able to put ourselves first in the place of the younger brother because we will see we've all been there. If not, some may be there now, but then also the older brother, how well we accept those who come to faith in Christ. So let's look first at the younger brother, the prodigal son, and he represents our rebellion against God the Father. The prodigal son represents our rebellion against God the Father. Let's look at Luke 15, verses 11 through 16. Verse 11, he also said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate I have coming to me. So he distributed the assets to them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered together all that he had, and he traveled to a distant country where he squandered his estate in foolish living. After he had spent everything, a severe famine struck that country, and he had nothing. Then he went to work for one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his field to feed the pigs. He longed to eat his fill from the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one would give him anything. So you got two sons. Both worked for their father. But the younger of the two sons becomes restless. He wants to break out on his own. So he asked for his inheritance. And this was, of course, an incredibly disrespectful thing to do. Before his father dies, he's saying essentially he doesn't care if his dad lives or dies. He just wants his inheritance. He wants his independence. An incredibly disrespectful thing to do. Not only is he saying, I don't want to work for you. I don't want to, to help the family and help you. I, I, I don't care if you're alive. I, I just soon you be dead so I can have what I want and go out and do what I want to do. But the father incredibly gives him what he asks for. Even though this is such a sign of disrespect. And, and, and by receiving his share of the inheritance, the younger son, he's, he's, he's not only disrespecting his father, he's forfeiting any rights he has as a son, as a member of this family, as an heir to what his father has. He's essentially saying and legally becoming no longer a member, I don't want to be, and he's no longer a member of this family. According to the law, according to the customs of the day, according to what he is communicating to his dad. He would have understood all of that. He didn't care. He wanted what he wanted, and he wanted to go out on his own. So he's no longer a member of this family, no longer an heir, no longer has any claim to his dad estates when, when those inheritance provisions become available to he and his brother. 
So he loses his name, he loses his standing, he loses his prestige in the community where he was raised. He's completely cut off. As far as the community, he said he didn't care if his dad wanted to be dead. Well, now as far as the community's cut off, he might as well be dead. He no longer exists. That is where the younger brother finds himself now. He gets his share of the inheritance. Scripture says he got together all that he had, and he left. He's now free to go on his own, and that's exactly what he does. Now, I think a lot of things probably contributed to this decision. You know, maybe stubbornness, maybe uh, immaturity, idealism, you know, grass is greener. You know, I can go off and make it on my own. Why should I slave away from my dad when I can go make money for myself and do my own thing? Uh, maybe he just wanted to party and he didn't want to work. I mean, you know, we see that, right? He, he, a lot of carousing goes on. A lot of things contributed. Selfishness, greed, pride. You could name a lot of reasons for this. But in a relatively short period of time, we see he spends everything. He wastes it all. And this is where the story begins to hit home for all of us. So I've never done that to my dad. Maybe you've never blown any amount of money. You've never done anything like this. But we can all identify with the younger son here because any of us who have ever sinned against our loving Heavenly Father have squandered the inheritance he's given us. Whenever we rebel against God, we take what he offers us, which is a life of relationship with him, meaning, purpose, part of his kingdom work, and we choose to go in a different direction. We are squandering the opportunities that he gives us. Even when we are lost, you know, the original sin of man, the inherited sin of man, all all that we have, we could have had perfect fellowship with God. Yet we wasted it. Before you start blaming Adam and Eve, we all choose to sin. And when we do that, we're saying we want what we want more than we want what God wants. We want what we want more than we want God himself, which is what this son was doing. The truth is, when we become more concerned with things than people, pleasure more than duty... And distant scenes, more than the blessings that we have right at home, we're asking for trouble. We're asking for heartache. We're asking for pain for ourselves and for those that we love. And that's exactly where this younger son finds himself. Now he realizes, not only is he asking for trouble, he's found it. He's in trouble. He's lost everything that he inherited. And he has nowhere to go. He's messed up. He's hit rock bottom. He's come to the end of the road. Whatever you want to say there, whatever phrase you want to use to describe the fact that he is in trouble. Crop failures in the country that he's in makes the headlines, news of crop failures. Inflation causes prices to soar. Can we identify? (laughs) Jobs were at a premium. The entire economy is tanking where he's at. And the prodigal son was not only without money, he didn't, it, it tells us that no one would help him. He didn't have a single friend. He had friends when he had money, but now they're nowhere to be found. Not true friends, right? He didn't have anyone. He's desperately looking for another job. So all he could find was a, a job feeding pigs. Now that's, that, that's rock bottom right there. I mean that, that's, that's the lowest of the low, especially for a Jew. The worst of the worst. 
He had been taught since his childhood that, that, that pigs were unclean animals. So now not only is he around them, he's, he's messing around feeding them, and he doesn't have food for himself. I mean, it is the lowest of the low. And his boss, in addition to that, is a Gentile. So, I mean, it, it just, you know, it keeps getting worse for this, this guy. So his, his boss being a gent, not only is he feeding pigs, not only is he the lowest of the low, he can't even observe the Sabbath anymore. I mean, it is, he is in a desperate situation. He's cut off from his religion. He's cut off from his family. He's considered dead by his community. You could say he was desperate, right? We see that. He's hungry. He's poor. He's so hungry. He's so desperate. Uh, and you know, this is just hard to even think about, but he's so hungry that he's craving the food, the slop that he's giving to the pigs. If only I could fill my stomach, which he can't even do that. Wasn't fit for humans to eat, but, you know, his job was to feed the pigs, not to eat the pig's food. So, I mean, he, he, he has nowhere, nowhere else to turn, but this is where we learn a valuable lesson about sin. John eight thirty four. Jesus says, truly, I tell you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. You know, sin promises us a lot, but it never delivers. It promises success, but it always brings failure. Sin's tempting. It's enticing. Initially, it's enjoyable, right? That's why we're tempted to do it. It promises happiness, success, but it brings failure. It promises life, but the wages of sin, Romans 6.23, is death. It brings death. There are consequences. We went... Uh, out west on our vacation last week. Uh, spent about about eight days out of town. We went to Arizona, saw the Grand Canyon, went to Glen Canyon, uh, went um, uh, hiked the Narrows uh, in Zion National Park. Uh, we saw a lot of, in, I mean, incredible, beautiful displays of God's creation. And uh, I think it was last Sunday, it was last Sunday night, we were gathered around we, we, uh, for three nights, we, we, we roughed it in a covered wagon that had king-size bed and air conditioning. <laughs> but one night, Sunday night, we, were, we gathered around uh, the family outside uh, the covered wagon, and we had a Bible study. And we had seen so many different things up to that point. Most of our hiking was done. Um, we were headed back. Uh, uh, starting our journey back the next day. We had a lot more to see driving, but we went around the family, and I, I talked about, you know, um, uh, how the Psalms says, you know, creation, uh, the heavens declare the glory of God, and we talked about that. And I asked each of the kids, Mandy and myself, to give examples of something they had learned about God from creation. We ran around, and, and everybody shared something uh, unique. Uh, I think Annie talked about the diversity of God. She didn't use that word, but she, you know, talked about how how different God is. You know, we see that because you would drive ten miles and see a completely different scene. Uh, Timmy talked about God's power. I can't remember what Gracie talked about, um, uh, but I know Eli talked about the bigness of God and just all that we had seen. You know, just a new appreciation for God. And uh, and for me, that day we had been hiking. Uh, in, in, uh, in Zion, it was just a short little hike, you know, it was just uh, a mile, I think, even. But, but much of the trail we were on was probably three or four feet wide with a very steep, long drop-off with no railing, okay? And so we're hiking, and I've got, you know, we've got Mandy and, and all four kids, so 16 to 
to eight, all right? Uh, Mandy and the youngers stopped at a certain point, and Gracie and Timmy and I went on to the, to the overlook that we were seeing here. But in those moments with those three or four foot paths with a drop off, it's, it's a little nerve wracking, okay? And if you've, if you've met my kids, I won't name any names, but some of them are a little clumsy, okay? Um, they take after Mandy and me, we both are. Uh, but at one point, and, and you know, it, it was more dramatic in the moment. It wasn't as big of a deal. But at one point, we were on one of those little paths, and I hear Eli, who was holding Gracie's hand, scream. Gracie slipped. She, she kind of fell. She caught her footing. It wasn't a huge deal. But that is what I learned from creation that day about God. Creation is beautiful. It does display the many varied aspects of God's character, wonderful aspects of God's character. God is perfect. He's holy. But it also taught me in that moment, something creation teaches us is that we need to fear God and respect God. And just like on that path, you take a wrong step and there can be incredible consequences. Thankfully, there were not for us. All right. But that happens in life, doesn't it? God has rules and he has guardrails he set for us. And when we walk the path that he chooses for us, we have joy and contentment. But when we step outside the bounds, there are consequences. And this younger son is now experiencing the consequences of stepping outside God's boundaries for the family, for inheritance, for obedience, for all of this. But then verse 17 tells us he came to his senses. He thinks about home. He thinks about his father, how he had mistreated him, how he disrespected him. He thought about how good he was treated. He didn't want that before. Now he's pining for that. He thinks about himself. And he says, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. These hired men were living in royalty compared to the way he was living now. And he knew his father was generous. He belonged to everybody who belonged to his household. So he realizes that he had sinned. Exodus 20, 12 tells us, honor your father and mother so that you will have a long life in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And the next few verses say it all. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired workers have more than enough food? And here I am dying of hunger. I'll get up, go to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired workers. So he got up and he went to his father. But while the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. He ran, threw his arms around his neck, and he killed him. Oh, he kissed him. (laughs) Maybe he wanted to kill him. I don't know. That would, be, that would not have been a happy ending to the story, right? <laughs> he killed him, then he kissed him. But the, the young man finally comes to his senses, right? He finally, he finally, gets, he, he finally realizes what he's, he's, he's lost, what he's given up, and he's ready to go home. He was ready to confess his sins. He said, I'm going to go home. He rehearses it. You can see the scene. He's sitting there. He's rehearsing what he's going to say. He's going over it. He's got a long way to think about it. He's got a long walk home. He's thinking about it over and over and over. And he he gets, what he shows us here is, is true humility, true repentance. I mean, he's not just, man, I'm sorry that I blew the money. I wish I still had the money. 
I mean, he realizes, he truly realizes what he's done and what he's given up. And he turns from where he is and he turns back to his father. That's the definition of repentance, turning from sin and turning to the father in humility. And here's where we see the father and what he represents for us in this story. He represents the love and forgiveness of God the father. The earthly father, the young man's earthly father, represents the love and forgiveness of God the Father. So we move on in the story. We see that that the father has a special relationship with both of his sons. He loved them equally, but they were different, right? The two sons could not have been more different. And you would understand if the father, when the younger son asked for his inheritance, if he would have just said no. I mean, he would have been within his rights to do that. He didn't have to give him the inheritance, so he could have said no. But he loved them dearly, both sons, but not possessively. He knew that his younger son was determined to do this, so he was going to let him make his own mistakes and learn from his own mistakes, which is one of the hardest things to do as a parent, right? To let your kids make their own mistakes and learn from their own mistakes. You can protect them not perfectly, but you can protect them when they're little, but when they get older, they've got to make decisions for themselves and suffer consequences for mistakes that they make. He doesn't argue with his son. He acknowledges his son's desire to be independent, and even though this would have deeply hurt him, and it did, he agrees to the request. While his son was gone, we can assume that the father thought about him, probably tried to find out where he was, prayed for him, and obviously went out daily to at least look to see if maybe he was coming home. He didn't know when he was coming home, when he did come home. So the fact that he's standing out there looking meant that was a regular habit for him. He looked, hoping, praying, maybe today will be the day that he finally comes home. And then one day, in the distance, he sees. He sees before he even knows Who it is by being able to recognize the appearance, he recognizes the familiar walk of his son, probably. And in a move that would have been certainly not considered appropriate for the day, he doesn't walk to his son, he runs to his son. And he doesn't kill him. (laughs) He grabs him. And as far as the dad's concerned, yeah, I mean, all that hurt still existed, All of that was still there, but all of that, I've got my son back. That's all he cares about. Finally, I have my son back. And he grabs him, and he kisses him, and he hugs him. Verse 20 is such a beautiful verse. And it's so very important for us to wrap our minds around. While his son, the the father... The son gets up, he goes on his way. The father's looking, he's waiting. It's day, you can just picture, it's that time of day, right? He's, okay, I'm going to go out and wait for a little while. So I'm going to sit here. He's probably not going to come today, but maybe, who knows? And he's watching, he's waiting. And still, he waits, he waits. And finally, in the distance, he sees his son. But, but he doesn't wait for the son. The son thinks, I'm going to have to walk that walk of shame all the way to my dad. I'm going to have to bow on my face. But whatever it takes, anything's better than what I've experienced. But no, while he's still a long distance off, the father runs to him. He runs to where he is. So very important. 
It was a lack of self-respect for him to do this. But the father didn't care. He runs to his son. He throws his arms around him. He kisses him. He accepts him as a member of his family. He doesn't have any rights to that family, but the father accepts him back. He quickly makes it known to everybody there that he still considers him his son. Anybody that would question that, because the community would not have. Other members of the family would not have. The son confesses his sin, verse 21. Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And this was the truth. He didn't. He didn't have any right to be called his son because of his past. He had forfeited that voluntarily. But the father's love forces the son to let go of his carefully rehearsed plan to work for him as a hired man. The father accepts his son as he is. The father had his son back, and now it was time to celebrate. Verse 22, the father told his servants, Quick, bring the best robe, put it on him, put the ring on his fingers, the sandal on his, sandals on his feet, then bring the fattened calf and slaughter it. Let's celebrate with a feast, because this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he's found. So they began to celebrate. Now, we don't know how all the legal rights to the inheritance were settled. That's not the point. What we do know is that the son returned home and he's accepted by his father as a member of the family again. And this teaches us a wonderful truth about our Heavenly Father's love for us. When we repent of sin, when we turn from sin, when we turn back to God seeking forgiveness in humility, we, we return to Him, we're accepted just the way we are. He comes to us. We don't have to improve ourselves to get forgiveness from God. We just have to turn to him and ask for forgiveness. He, he accepts us as we are. He forgives us and then he restores us. He makes us acceptable afterwards. The father in this parable illustrates some wonderful truths about God's heart towards sinners. It tells us about his love. 1 John 4, 8 tells us that God is love. His love is long-suffering. The father watched and he waited day after day after day until finally the son came back. And 2 Peter 3, 9 tells us the Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but is patient with you, not wanting any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Why hasn't Jesus come back yet? Because God's still being patient, long-suffering. He wants sinners to come to repentance, and he knows who's going to accept him, certainly, but he, he's being long-suffering. He's being loving. He's being gracious. God's love is unconditional. Verse 20 is such a beautiful picture. Not only does the Father forgive him, he accepts him back as his son. Nothing could change the Father's love for that son, not even his own son telling him, essentially, I wish you were dead. He still loved him. The father ran to his son. He didn't care about decorum. He just wanted his son back. That's all he wanted. In the same way, just as that father went to his son, God came to us while we were still dead in sin. Christ died for us. We were lost, could not restore ourselves, could not do anything. But God proved his love for us. Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, came to us. And here's the truth, wherever you are, whatever you've done, whatever you're dealing with, wherever you are today, God will meet you where you are. He won't leave you where you are. He'll make you what he wants you to be, but he'll meet you wherever you are. He offers you life. 
He offers forgiveness, a new life in Christ. John 10, 10, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus says, I have come so that they may have life and have it to the full. And all of hell, heaven will celebrate when lo- one lost sinner comes to repentance. And we should too, as believers, no matter what they've done, we should, we should celebrate when someone who's lost or someone who's in rebellion repents and turns back to God. And that's where the third character in the story comes in. You know, it could have ended, the story could have ended with, they all began to celebrate, right? But that's not where it ends. There were two sons, remember? And the older son represents our tendency to refuse to accept the outcasts of society. The older son was the faithful son. He was the son that was always obedient, had done what he was supposed to, had lived inside the lines, had always done what his father wanted. He served his father well, and his father certainly appreciated his hard work. Look at verse 25. We see, though, this older son was in the field. As he came near to the house, he hears music and dancing. So he summoned one of the servants, questioning what these things meant. Your brother is here, he told him, one of the servants did. And your father has slaughtered the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. So he hears the noise, the music, the dancing. He asks what's going on. He asks one of the servants. The servants tells him, your brother's back. Your father's throwing a party. He's killed the fattened calf. There's a celebration going on. Now here's the deal. If the older son enters the home, he has to, because of the custom, become the master of ceremonies. He's in charge of the celebration. He makes sure everybody has plenty of food. He makes sure he has to mingle with the guests. He has to keep the party going for as long as it's supposed to go. Food supplies, beverages, all of that. It's his job if he enters the house to do that. But instead, the older son refuses. Look at verses 28 and 29. He becomes angry. And he didn't want to go in. So his father comes out, and he pleads with him. But he replied to his father, Look, I've been, I've been slaving for many years for you, and I've never disobeyed your orders, yet you never gave me a goat so that I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours has came, you, who has devoured your assets with prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. He just could not understand why his father who had not thrown a celebration for him for being faithful all these years, would do all of this for this good-for-nothing brother of his who had squandered part of the family's inheritance. But the truth is, the father loved them both the same. They were different, but he loved them equally. The father, think about this, the father ran to meet the younger son, right? But the father also went out to meet the older brother, too. He loved them both the same, but here's the deal. The older son didn't want equal treatment. He wanted special treatment. And, and, you know, you can make an argument he deserved it based on his actions. But the father's trying to communicate, you're both dear to me. You're both my sons. Father continues to plead with him. Verse 31, son, he said to him, you're always with me and everything that I have is yours. But we have to celebrate. We had to rejoice. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. He's saying, you're my child. I'm your father. 
And that will always be the case. Everything that I have is yours. I will always love you, always have, always will. But this, your brother, he came back. We have him back. We have reason to celebrate. And the sad reality, this older brother who had always been faithful, who had always done what he was supposed to do, who had always been obedient, who did not physically leave his father, is now just as far away emotionally and spiritually from his father as the younger son was physically before. He's rebelling. He's denying what he should do. He's not being obedient by accepting his his younger brother in. And the parable ends with this statement. Because this brother of yours, that he's asked, the question is, are you going to join the party, right? Are you going to come in and celebrate? Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive and he was lost and he's found. We don't know what the older brother decides to do. And so it is for us. You know, maybe you identify with the younger brother. You've squandered time. You've squandered talents. You've squandered gifts that God has given you. You've rebelled against God. Maybe you're lost. You don't know your Heavenly Father because you have never accepted the gracious gift of salvation. Maybe you are a child of God and you have decided to go all your own way. And you're living out of fellowship with God. You have squandered the inheritance that God has given you. We've all been there. So the question is, will you come home? The invitation's there. God's waiting. He's willing to accept you and to love you and forgive you, but you have to turn back to him. He'll meet you where you are, but you do have to turn back to him. You've got you to take the first step of repentance, showing, showing true sorrow over sin and humility and a desire to receive forgiveness. But if you are in that place, God will give you forgiveness and restore you. But the message is also for the faithful, the Christian who's loved and he's obeyed God or she's loved and obeyed God for years and continues to serve faithfully. When that that rebellious member of God's family returns home, will we receive them with joy and with forgiveness and celebration? When that outcast of society that no one else wants to love turns to God in repentance, seeking forgiveness and is saved, will we accept them? into God's family, and celebrate just as the angels in heaven do. I, I have a couple of knives at home, but I, I've got one that I received when I was younger, and I, I brought it. And, and this knife is it's just a, it's an old-timer pocket knife. It's just an ordinary pocket knife. But it's, this knife is incredibly um, unique, and I'll explain why. It's not unique because of what it does. I mean, you can, go, you can go to Bass Pro right now and buy one just like it or order one online, all right? But I got it when I was probably a little younger than Timmy, probably about 12 or 13 years old. But here's the thing about this knife. I've had it for that long, and I have lost this knife more times than I can remember. I, I, honestly, I cannot tell you how many times I've lost this knife, and it always turns up. I mean, I always end up finding it somewhere. Well, I gave it to Timmy probably about five years ago. I bought a new one for myself. I gave him this one. And when we moved here in 2018, it got lost in the move. We, we couldn't, Timmy put it in a box. That little box went in a big box. And we, uh, we unpacked boxes we never could find. I ended up getting him another one for his birthday a couple years ago. 
Could not, couldn't find, I, find, I thought, this thing's finally lost for good. Well, the other day, about two weeks ago, we were up, we have some boxes up in, in the garage up here next to the office, and we're starting to finally clean that, that stuff out. We're going, Mandy's going through a box, and guess what she finds? She finds the pocket knife. I couldn't believe it. I sent Timmy a text. He was at youth camp. I sent Timmy a text. You're not going to believe what mom found. He couldn't believe it either. And no matter what happens, this thing turns up. I don't know what it is about this, this knife. And it's not even mine anymore, but I'm going to tell you, I was, I, I was thrilled when she found it again. I couldn't believe it. Every time it turns up. But you know, it got me to thinking as I was preparing this message. How many times have I been lost? Certainly, originally I was lost without salvation, right? I was saved at the age of seven. But how many times in my life have I decided to go my own way through rebellion against God? How many times have I chosen to make decisions that I knew he didn't want me to make and suffer the consequences? And how many times has he accepted me back when I finally came to my senses and came to him in repentance, asking for forgiveness? How many times have people in my life made decisions and have I accepted them with the same forgiveness and celebration that, that God did when they finally returned to him? You know, time and time and time again in our lives, we make decisions that, that are contrary to God's will, contrary to God's plan. We suffer the consequences, but if we will turn from those sins and turn to God, he's always there to accept us. That's not a reason to sin. That should motivate us even more not to sin, right? The graciousness and loving forgiveness of God. But here's the deal. This knife isn't mine. I was celebrating when she found it, but it's not mine anymore. It's Timmy's. I kept it so we wouldn't lose it again before I preached this sermon. <laughs> but I'm going to give it back to him after this is over with. He, it's his now. I gave this away. God, if you, if, he, if you are his, if you belong to him, he will never give you away. He will never let you go. You are his from now until eternity, throughout eternity. There will never become a time, be a time where you're not his. That's the graciousness of a loving heavenly father. So in the parable of the loving father, the faithful father, we learn about the forgiveness of God. And we learn how to receive it, enjoy it, but we should also learn how to show it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your grace, your mercy. Thank you for all that you do to show your grace and your mercy, the many times you've shown your grace and your mercy, your faithfulness. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. We can depend on you. We can count on you. And certainly we could hear a story like this, Father, and, and use it as a, a reason, as encouragement to just do whatever we want, knowing that you'll forgive us, but that's not true love. That's not a true sign of someone who's, who has really experienced your grace. When we hear this story, it should motivate us, if we are in rebellion, to turn back to you. It should help us to realize the gravity of, of the consequences of the mistakes that we make. Not only 
the ones we experience, but what it does to our fellowship with you if we know you and if we're lost, what that will do eternally if we, if, if we continue to live in rebellion and we don't turn to you for forgiveness. Lord, I pray that it would motivate us beyond that to be more faithful. When we learn of your grace and mercy, it should motivate us to be more obedient, to follow you faithfully each day. Lord, I pray that we would take a lesson from the younger son and and certainly uh, learn from our mistakes. And if if there's sin that needs to be confessed, that we would confess it. But also, I pray that we would take a lesson from the older son. And if there is someone who is an outcast, anyone who's lost, who comes to faith in you, that we would celebrate. If there's someone, uh, a member of God's family who's in rebellion and they turn back to you in repentance, Lord, that we would accept them with celebration just as we know you do. Lord, we, we look to your faithfulness, we look to your mercy, we look to your love, and we should model that in our lives. We should live with a desire to be like you and to become more like you each day as you mold us and shape us into the image of your Son. Lord, just speak to our hearts in this moment. Help us to respond in a way that pleases you. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand for our time of decision?